Hey, before we start, may I make a quick request? Thank you. Would you mind leaving this podcast a review? I don't chase metrics, and I'm actually not worried about whether we get reviews or not. However, I'm not the software that runs by an algorithm and tells other potential users and listeners to give this one a go. So when you leave a review, you trick the algorithm, and then more people get to hear about exploring compassionate capitalism. Thank you for helping your fellow listeners out. All right, let's do some exploring. Our topic is compassionate capitalism, not ordinary capitalism, the compassionate kind. Does that sound like utopia? Strictly woo? Is it even possible? Let's dig in. This is part two of our series about those pesky things called employees. (laughs) Most businesses have them. And the ones who don't have employees, well, they will have contractors and freelancers and some even preferred suppliers. So when I say employees, I mean all manner of help to get the job done. And today I want to talk about paying those pesky people. Yowza! We're going to talk about wages, bonuses, and benefits. So let's start with wages. Did you know that the history of minimum wage is about the attempts and measures that governments have made in order to introduce a standard amount of periodic pay below which employers could not compensate their workers. And it's also the backstory of the shoddy behavior of corporations throughout a huge swath of history. Minimum wage began with women and children because that was the first two groups that needed protection from being exploited. New Zealand and Australia were the first countries who recognized a minimum wage, and that was long before the year 1900. Winston Churchill began implementing minimum wages on a piecemeal basis starting in 1908 and finishing in 1930. And in my own country, Canada, by 1920, all provinces across the country had a legal minimum wage threshold. Around that same time, the U.S. under Roosevelt introduced the minimum wage concept. And then, like all things American, it spent about 20 years in the courts until finally being validated by the Supreme Court in 1941. Now my point is the minimum wage was set up to prevent the exploitation of women and children first, then by certain industries, then by education or lack of education, and finally to ensure that nobody was paid less than that amount. And the minimum wage can be termed subsistence because it is generally sufficient to pay for housing or food, but not both. The minimum wage is frequently used for tracking labor productivity because once upon a time, some corporate wizard decided that humans were exactly like assembly lines and measuring their ability to produce was a highlight for how productive and wealthy the economy was. Sadly, that same wizard never once considered how nothing can be constantly productive. Nothing can keep producing forever. 
Everything needs a downtime. Everything has a season. And the result of constantly producing is an overabundance of all unnecessary good and bad stuff. Kind of like what we have today. So much is cheap and cheerful and easy to buy, yet we are also plagued with far too much pollution, far too much climate change catastrophe, and an abundance of unhappiness. Forever, there has been a love-hate relationship between business and government around regulations and laws. And the whole concept of minimum wage is still a contentious issue even after 100 years of existence. Now, from what I've seen, the contention is always about how much profit can we make if we pay the smallest and still the legal amount of remuneration. And I think this is completely bass-ackwards. It should be how much profit is reasonable if we pay the appropriate remuneration for the economies in which our people live. So yes, I believe that every single working person is entitled to a minimum wage, which translates to the living wage of the country they are living in. A living wage is defined as the minimum income necessary for a worker to meet their basic needs. Basic needs are defined to include food, housing, and other essential needs such as clothing and medicine. The goal of a living wage is to allow a worker to afford a basic but decent standard of living through employment without government subsidies. And due to the flexible nature of the term needs, there is not one universally accepted measure of what a living wage is, and as such, it varies by location and household type. I want to be very clear about something, though. A living wage is not a family wage. In the old days, even 40 years ago, one of the best lies I heard in the battle for equality between a man and a woman was that the man needed to be paid more because he had a family to support. Apparently, the women never had to support the family, and apparently, the women's education and talent were simply ignored. I do not support a family wage for either sex. I support a living wage for a few reasons. When you pay your employees enough to cover their food, housing, clothes, and some medicine, you actually remove a significant burden and worry from their minds. This means they are mentally free to give you creative ideas, innovation tweaks, and the occasional metal-to-the-pedal moments that crop up. In other words, you get more of them, which means you get more from them. The second reason I support a living wage is it sets you apart from the exploiters. Your reputation takes a huge swing upwards because everyone sees you as a purpose-driven community leader instead of a miserly, cantankerous, or cheap business leader. Now here's the truth that is always ignored. Sterling reputations attract sterling customers. And sterling customers always stay with you longer. 
The third reason I support a living wage is you just made your community work smoother. See, it's not just the employees, the gig workers, the freelancers, the contractors that you're paying. It's also the spin-off businesses that you don't see that your people use and that can now stay in business longer because they have customers making enough to afford them. In other words, you are now part of the solution of keeping your community together longer. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. You can't afford to pay a living wage. The only thing you can pay is a minimum wage. Let me give you four specifics that you can do. And I guarantee that if you believe paying minimum wage is still the only way, then none of these will work for you. First, let's look at the size of earnings that you take out of the business. We all want a lovely lifestyle. I get it. However, if you are taking what could be viewed as too much too soon, have a chat with yourself and get comfortable with taking less for a while. Second, are you charging enough for the goods and services? Far too many of us become obsessed over a dollar figure when we should be obsessed over the value we are giving the customer. I always ask, what is the transformation you give the client for doing what you do? Start there. And yes, it might very well mean you need to change your messaging, some of your marketing, and raise your prices. Third, have you taken advantage of all the technology available to streamline your operations? Now, this probably sounds silly, I realize, because everyone is tech savvy these days, right? No, that is simply not correct. For a strong majority of small and medium-sized businesses, the wonders of tech apps are not used. And I am not advocating using tech to eliminate people. I'm advocating using tech to better utilize people. Fourth, if you operate in the personal space, like where you must deal one-on-one -on -one with your clients, say like a restaurant or like a doctor or a hairstylist or a dentist or a private tutor or personal stylist. Your options may be, in fact, a bit more limited. So can you explore different business models um, of operation? It sounds a bit facile yet. When we get off the merry-go-round of creating wealth for ourselves and onto the merry-go-round of doing good, it is truly amazing the ideas that surface. Now, let me give you another idea based on what I have seen and I have done with clients. If you've been in business for at least five years, you want to revisit every single thing about your business your purpose, your values, your finances, your marketing, your offerings, your team mechanics, your mindset, everything. As a matter of fact, after the first session, most people find an annual review or revisit keeps the business fresh and sharp. And you can do this kind of thing a few hours a day over a week or three or cram it all into a three-day weekend, whatever works for you. 
I highly recommend this kind of a strategic retreat for every business owner, founder, and president, and particularly those of you who believe that minimum or low wages are all you can afford. I guarantee you, based on what I've seen with my own clients, there is a lot of untapped value buried somewhere in your business that you can unlock quickly and easily. All right, let's talk about bonuses. Right now, we're all horrified at the astronomical sizes of executive bonuses. To us, they bear no resemblance to reality. They are for a select few, and we scratch our heads at the dismal financial performance that often accompanies the payout. Those bonuses, the ones that pad the nest for the few, need a huge overhaul. The bonuses I want to talk about today are for the rest of the worker bees, not in the ranks of the few. You see, I believe bonuses are some of the best performance motivation tools going, especially for all levels below the rank of the privileged few. Everyone from the person who answers the phone, who cleans the facility, who operates the assembly lines, who protects the computers, who toils unseen in the background, who manage projects, who sell products and services. The ones who actually execute on the orders of the privileged few. I've put in several bonus plans during my career and today consult with clients about how to craft one. Here's a few ideas for you to consider. Number one, your executive team gets the long-term bonus plan because they're making the riskier, longer-term decisions. They get absolutely no money for what gets done this year. This year's results are not the responsibility of the executive team. Their results for next year, the year after that, and the year after that are. Those are known as the long-term results. Number two, every single employee not on your executive team can be put on a short-term results bonus plan because they are responsible for ensuring the specific actions and steps needed to accomplish this year's results, KPIs, or desired outcomes within a month or a 12-month time frame. That's short-term. Number three, one of the simplest ways to craft a bonus is to make the payout entirely dependent on accomplishing the desired outcome or more. Failure to meet the desired outcome means there is no bonus payout. Full stop. And finally, number four, it does mean that communication is vital. Progress must be measured and communicated very regularly, and every employee must know and understand how their efforts can and are making a difference and how their efforts can be rewarded. Now, for the last 35 years, I've heard the same tired argument. Oh my God, that means I must tell my employees how much money we make. And when they see that, they'll want more. And when we have great years, they'll want even more. And I just don't want anyone to have that kind of information. Now, let me tell you what I've seen in that same 35-year period with companies that do have bonus plans in place. Zero nada zip employees ever ask for more money because the company made more. Zero nada zip employees ever demanded their bonus when the company didn't make the objective. 
100% of all employees knew exactly how much effort they had made to move the needle during the year. And they knew by extension whether their bonus would meet their expectations. 100% of the employees knew how much effort they would make the following year. Employee churn or turnover always fell. Casual conversations almost always moved to how to do better and exceed the current year's objectives, and employee suggestions for improvements always exceeded the ability to implement them. Those are the kind of real hardcore results you can expect by showing some compassion in your remuneration practice and introducing a bonus component. The last piece I will address is benefits. I put benefits in the category of living wages. When we remove a huge piece of the niggly cost worry from the employee's plates, we ultimately get more from the employee. However, let's get very serious about something. The cost of medical and dental and short and long-term disability and all the benefit programs has grown substantially and particularly over the last decade. I do not believe it is the employer's sole responsibility to cover the entire cost. I believe it is a shared cost and the side that picks up the bigger share belongs to the employer. Some years it will be an easier lift than others and some years it will feel more like a discretionary cost that can be chopped. Please don't. What I and my clients have found to work best is to include your employees as part of the decision process. Now, I don't mean that everyone, and I certainly don't mean a few people from HR. What I mean is when you involve a greater part of your employee base in some of the more personal benefit decision making, you demonstrate a higher degree of respect and trust and always 100% of the time, that respect and trust comes back to you in the form of more acceptance and way less pushback when the hard decisions need to be made. Now, for some of you, what I've outlined today goes completely contrary to what you have learned or even how you operate. And for others, you can see the benefits of moving to a more compassionate way of rewarding your employees. I'm going to end by asking you one simple question. Based on what you see in your world right now, can you honestly say that the actions that we have taken these past 20, 30, 50, 75, and even 100 years have ultimately yielded no unintended consequences? Exactly. The unintended consequences of our poor decisions are all around us today, and we must begin to change our thinking for the better. Since we can't ask for a do-over, the time is now to do a do-better, and that do-better absolutely must be in the highest good of all.